Hello and welcome to FS Brew. FS Brew is the region's first podcast focusing on all things insurance and insurtech here in the UAE and the wider Middle East. I'm Vidya. I'm the founder of Forward, a startup that works with insurance companies to build their go-to-market digital proposition. And hi, I'm Ranjit Philip. I consult with startups in the zero to one stage, going up to Series A. I help them with funding, M&A, strategy, and go-to-market. Uh, in this episode, we are fortunate to speak with Shwetank Verma. Shwetank is an early stage venture investor in India and Southeast Asia with Leo Capital. They're focused on digital health, insurtech, and fintech. Uh, he's, he's had uh, multiple big investments under his belt. He's invested in WayForward, GetRia, CoverGenius, and BeatO app. Vidya, why don't you start off with what you enjoyed from this interview? The clear standout for me was how your capital look at a startup when they invest in. He obviously said the whole market fit and how that has to be like the biggest thing in terms of what is the highest potential of the problem that you're solving. And then, and what they secondly look at is the founder's fit and how they actually look at the different characteristics of the founder, their resilience, their ability to take initiative, their ability to make decisions and in a climate of ambiguity. How do they actually look at all those aspects over a period of time to, to truly come to a decision that, yes, this was a startup that will scale to the promise that they are putting out there. And I found that pretty interesting and pretty articulate, actually. Yeah, I think for me, apart from that, the whole focus on team and TAM is really the, the fact that now the investment climate has obviously changed and there's a lot of focus on unit economics, path to profitability, and at least having a model that is viable and sustainable is money is not just being thrown out at any startup that moves anymore. So I think the VCs are rightfully conscious about backing the right startups with a sustainable business model, which is, I think, a good thing. That was a noteworthy to take in. But the other thing that I quite enjoyed was about the whole idea around InsurTech Association, why they started that, why it is a relevant uh, association in terms of the problems that the InsurTechs face, especially when convincing their solution to insurers. And that's all so familiar for us here in the Middle East as well. So it feels maybe a universal problem that that was very interesting to note. And also his whole take around diversity. Both of us are quite passionate about it. I personally also face a lot of all of those pieces, the biases. So I think the idea of having diversity as part of, as a goal in not just their investment, but also in their teams is something that I thought was quite appreciated for us. Absolutely. So I think without further ado, we can go into the episode. Yes, we hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the show, Shwetang Verma. It is so lovely to have you here. Thanks for joining us at FS Drew. Welcome, Shwetang. Hi. Thanks, Vidya. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm going to deep dive into the first question, and it's something that we asked all of us. What inspired you to become a venture capitalist, and what has been your biggest achievement in this role so far? A tough question to start with. No softballs. What inspired me to become a VC? I think I, I've always been an entrepreneur. So built a business when I was 18 year old, built another business when I was a 25 year old. And I have learned at the coal phase of what it takes to build a business. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of passion for the particular problem. Sure. And it's, it's all in. And I think after selling my second business, I realized that it's hard to continue to build that kind of passion to 
to go all into building another business. But I love being next to entrepreneurs, working with people who are passionate about that one problem that they're looking to solve. There's nothing more exciting than working with alongside people who are fully supercharged, massively motivated, and truly believe they can change the world. So I was looking at what are the options? What is the best way to work and support these entrepreneurs? And honestly, the really the only real answer was venture capital. After looking around and talking to a few other funds, I realized that actually the, what I want to do, the best way of doing it is to become a founder all over again, because I am actually passionate about this problem of how do you work with founders? How do you support them? How do you help them scale? And hence Leo was born in 2018. That's really good. And I echo that feeling working with smart founders of all ages, and you get a chance to learn with, learn from them and be, you're infected by their passion. So it's an amazing feeling. Perfect. Now you wear two hats. You're also a co-founder of the Indian InsurTech Association. That's, and that's the FS Brew angle. We are all about insurance. Tell us a little bit about the InsurTech Association, the origin story, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the trends and the challenges facing the InsurTech industry in India. Yes, wear two hats, trying to try to do justice to both. InsurTech actually, what happened was taking a step back, my second startup was in the InsurTech space. We were trying to build vitality in a box for Indian insurers in 2013. So before our time, a bit before the right kind of mobile penetration, et cetera. But I think for me, the the lesson from that startup was it's just so hard to sell to insurers. Like it was impossible to get insurers to move, to meet deadlines, to see that they needed to do something slightly different. So when I sold that business, I said to myself, let me try to see what, how can one improve this process? So that's. That was led to my first sort of corporate stint where I worked with MetLife, running open innovation, trying to make it easier for startups to partner with a large insurer like MetLife. And when I left MetLife, I realized that there's a lot more we can do to improve collaboration between insurtechs and insurers. And also when I started doing Leo, I realized that I can't invest in every insurtech that I want to because by the nature of venture capital, can't invest in everything. So to continue to do more on the insurance side, to engage more with more insurtechs, and to continue to figure out ways to help insurers and insurtechs collaborate. India Insurtech Association was born with two of my colleagues, Prerat and Shubhajit. In some ways, actually, it's a COVID baby. I remember clearly we were sitting on a call saying, hey, we have to figure out how we improve the velocity of partnerships in the Indian insur- insurtech market. Shubhajit was, the, was one of the original founders of the Singapore Fintech Association. So I, I said, I said, hey, Shubhajit, you've experience of founding this kind of association. Why don't we find found the Indian Shortage Association? He said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, before you know it, we are now 220 members. All the InsurTechs are sort of part of the platform. And I think we you know there's some good work going on uh, in the organization. Do I think you asked a question also around what are the trends and challenges? Trends, there are many trends, I think, and with the new technologies around, especially AI, smart contracts, et cetera. A lot of technological opportunities opening up. But I like to think of things from a customer perspective. So from a customer perspective, I think personalization, convenience, and that concierge feeling, I think is the key thing that we need to solve for. Insurance still remains too impersonal for personal lines. Claims are difficult. You don't know what your policy covers or it doesn't cover. The NPS always is hopeless for all insurers. NPS being net promoter score. Yeah. So I would love to see that in this decade, that changes, right? Insurance becomes truly a customer-centric product and industry on the personal lines. And there's another huge sort of opportunity on the commercial lines where how can you use data 
to better predict, prevent, maintain everything from machines to buildings. As a follow-up on that, just because there is chat GPT, I have to ask you this question. <laughs> your thoughts on generative AI and what possible impacts could be there on insurance? Yeah, there's of course a lot of people who are far smarter than I commenting on the aspects of generative AI. At the moment, it seems like a great tool for a bunch of things. I think customer service, customer engagement, these things can be scaled and be made much more personal as some of these technologies mature. But I think there's an opportunity for insurers to get out ahead and truly embrace this technology to improve their customer experience. At the far end, maybe there is an opportunity to figure out how you insure for some bad actions of AI, but I'm not sure any underwriter will underwrite that just yet. Interesting. In fact, you're talking about the challenges in the Indian industry. I think it's very similar as well, isn't it, Ranjit, in terms of the resistance to change and just really getting them to come on board with the whole piece. So I think the whole InsurTech Association is quite relevant in that sense. Jumping back to your VC hat, how do you evaluate startups that you feel you should invest in? What are the key characteristics that you look for in the startups before you decide, hey, I need to invest in these guys? Thanks, Yudhya. An easier question. I love that. <laughs> yeah, we invest. So taking, again, taking a small step back, we invest at the seed stage. When right. There are only two variables to evaluate at that point, the founding team and mm. the market. So the market is easier to evaluate. So the first question that I ask myself is, is there a venture scale market here? And those are very specific things in my mind. So venture scale means, can we see at least as a market size, is there 5 billion of revenue? That means if you put everyone together who's in the current market, are they making say $5 billion in revenue? And a slightly harder ask, are they making a billion dollars in gross profit? So your first question that you're trying to evaluate, is this big enough? Because see venture, the math of venture only works when you become create very large outcomes. And to create very large outcomes, you need to play in very large spaces. Mm -hmm. I like to explain this to founders as, think of it like real estate location. So it doesn't matter if you've got a great house in a terrible location, the maximum you can sell for is capped. So similarly with a company, you need to be playing in a location where a large enough outcome, a venture scale outcome can be built. And unfortunately, most companies fail this hurdle. It is really hard to get to that right space to be able to build a venture backable business. If you are in a right space and you are sort of solving a market that is venture backable, then it becomes all about the founder and the founding team. And there you're looking at obviously founder market fit, the ability of the founding team to build the right talent around them. I specifically like to think about three things about the founding team, which is what I call sort of their ability to deal with ambiguity, their initiative and their resilience. So you're trying to see these are three key traits, I think, of a good founder or a good founding team. Can they make decisions under ambiguity or under great uncertainty? Because you'll never know enough and you have to be able to take decisions. And one of the things that we see in startups that don't go very far is a lot of analysis paralysis, right? We'll think more, we'll think more. The best founders take a decision, ship, and if it doesn't turn out right, they change course. So right. decision-making under ambiguity. The second one actually is resilience. It's really important because as a founder, you will get told no more often than not. In fact, your life is sort of 99% no's and 0.1% yes, which changes everything, right? So how quickly do you bounce back from setbacks? How quickly, how easily are you able to recover from the inevitable no's that you're going to get, especially if you're building a, God forbid, an enterprise tech company selling to insurers. 
<laughs> that the resilience is really important. And then finally, initiative is mostly if you have founded a company, you've shown some initiative, but it's helpful to learn more about your background and where you've shown true initiative to say that I've created this or built this before starting a company. Uh, if we can take all these boxes, then we get super excited and start trying to lead you around. Those are some great points. I will ask you, you get one or two sessions with founders where you can have a talk about their pitch deck and stuff. How do you test for things like resilience? And yeah. Is yeah. that a bit of a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. It's hard to test in the first two calls. So yeah. these, these tests happen really more further along the line. So the first call is really all about qualifying the market. Is the market big enough? I, at least, I'm not testing the founders unless something truly comes out that the founder is not coming out correct or something is really a red flag. It's more about testing the market and the, what the solution is, what the problem is, why you're excited about the problem. And once that hurdle is crossed, then you spend time. And for us, we test these things by asking for references, doing ref calls with both customers and employees. I love talking to former colleagues and specifically asking them how did founders react to any setbacks from the bosses, this, that, and the other. That gives you flavor. Again, you're never going to get this 100% accurate, right? But you can start building a mental map around how, how this person reacts to certain stresses in their lives. And then you hope for the best. No, absolutely. And now, but you've been an entrepreneur, you've seen so many startups that you built a sort of pattern recognition. Your neural networks have created a model for evaluating. <laughs> yeah, 12 billion uh, parameters. I know. And, uh, and uh, taking on from that Vidya's question, now, let's say specifically an InsurTech founder comes to you and you're not geographically agnostic or any such issues there, right? No, we've invested everything from Latam through to Europe, through to India, of course, in Southeast Asia. So potentially Middle East InsurTech founders could knock on your doors. That's oh, brilliant. Absolutely. We encourage them to knock on our doors. I'm keen to invest more in the region Perfect. and meet more Wonderful. founders. Perfect. That's great news for our listeners. Yeah. So how should these InsurTech founders approach this? What would be the sort of key advice parameters that you would give them? Is it a brilliant teaser deck or is it just team and TAM that you've talked about? How should they go about it? Yeah, great question. So how should they approach Leo, right? Uh, more than general VC. So the, sim the simplest way to approach us really is send us the, your full deck. Don't send us a teaser or for heaven's sake, don't send an email saying, I'd like to send you a teaser, please sign an NDA. It's just, it's the fastest way to get to a no. So it's, our, our email is published everywhere. It's pitch at leo.capital. Send us your full deck. Take the opportunity in the email to summarize the problem you're solving. Why you're excited about that problem. And ideally why that problem is big enough to be venture scale. Okay. So if you're doing claims, you know, tell me the claims market in UAE is X hundred million dollars. The claims market in MENA is Y billion dollars. And that's why it's exciting to, to build this claims solution. And ultimately, of course, we want to go global as well. But you need that small initial market needs to be clear and tight. In your deck, I think one thing that all founders can do, the team slide is always wasted. If you take any deck, you'll find that the team slide is photos, logos, nothing else. And a LinkedIn link, it's like, this is prime real estate and you're putting a bunch of logos, half of which mean nothing to most people. Take that opportunity to improve your team slide, add a few bullet points as to why you're the right founding team, why you are uh, the right person to be solving this problem or the right team to be solving this problem. That may, that again, puts you at the top 1% of pitches. And the very best founders, of course, have, 
heard some of our podcasts and tend to write in with a small note saying, hey, this is how I've shown resilience or this is how I decided that I'm dignity. And those guys always get a call from us and we try and engage. But you don't have to do that. If you can answer why the market is big enough and why you are the right person, we will certainly engage and then take it from there. Pretty straightforward as well. So I think, I hope our listeners really take the notes on it. And just extending on the whole idea of InsureTech itself, you've shown how you're passionate about, you've seen there is a lot of problems to be solved. Now, how do you see the future of that InsureTech industry shaping, knowing the challenges that's existing there? And even in the Middle East as well, what are the trends or the issues that will go on to shape the industry in the next few years? Yeah, great question. I think the some ways the lowest hanging fruit, but equally the hardest fruit is regulatory change. So if you gave me a magic wand and said, what's the simplest thing you could do? I would actually say that getting full insurance license, but not necessarily full, do a micro insurance license, allowing digital disruptors to create and manage their own insurance products with obviously the right regulation, the right kind of capital, but making it faster, right? So rather than requiring two years or a year or whatever, you should be able to get it quickly, three months, and you start building out a differentiated product and a differentiated approach. If you can make that happen across any, across the regions we mentioned, India and Middle East, I think that will truly change the way insurance is perceived and adds value to customers. See, the problem is the incumbents are very well protected by the license board and most regulators, even though they make the right noises, have been very slow in, in granting new license. And this is a classic case where that's why the incumbents are not moving that quickly. There's not that much pressure. You need more market pressure. You need more fear that my day-to-day business is going to evaporate if I don't innovate at the pace of the market for things to change. And that's I think what we've seen in some of the unregulated industries. Now, no, I'm not suggesting for all the regulators listening, I'm not suggesting that we do not regulate or don't have capital adequacy, solvency ratios and things like that. I'm just suggesting that we try and create maybe a different class of license. You know, in the banking world, this has been done well. So there's like a small finance bank license in India. And yes. there's similar licenses in the UK everywhere where up to a certain deposit base, you are treated separately. So up to a certain insured base, you can be treated separately. And then, yes, you need to pay more attention to everything. But that even that, uh, the permission to do that at the small scale changes the market dynamics. And you can see how banking is much more responsive to customer trends than insurance. And especially there's something like life insurance, which is even further behind than say general insurance. So I think that's one thing that if it happens, it will be truly transformative and allow a lot of the innovation that I think is sitting in the founders' minds around insurance to come out. And yes, there'll be some challenges around that. I'm sure if we do that, there'll be some companies that won't make it and there'll have to be some cleanups. But in my mind, that's a better outcome than the status quo, which is just protecting the incumbents and the way that life has gone on for insurance for the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, I think you're right. And the banking industry has been far ahead of the insurance industry. And we know that the great financial crisis caused that lack of trust in the banking institutions, which probably helped regulators to create rules for fintechs to come up since 2008. Insurance industry hasn't had that kind of a crisis. We don't want that crisis, but what are the other drivers? The AIG is one of the key players in that crisis. That is a fair point. (laughs) There's a book called Fatal Risk, which I would encourage all my insurance, all insurance nerds to read. So Fatal Risk is a a biography of sorts of AIG and its role in the 2008 crisis. 
fascinating okay. book around how sort of the risk underwriting went a bit crazy there. With all the credit default swaps and things that half of which I don't understand. But we haven't had a consumer level crisis where policyholders have been left holding the bag and uh, probably some sort of a crisis is what's required to make regulators move faster. Yes, as they say, don't ever waste a crisis kind of thing, but hopefully we don't need a crisis to, to move forward. But yeah, that you're right. There's been no, uh, there's been no bank run kind of thing, right? Nobody yeah. is yeah, bailing on the insurer in a big way. But we can, I think, do things without requiring a crisis as well. Now, shifting gears a little bit, looking at your portfolio and to the extent that you can share, obviously, it would be great if you can pick one insurtech in your portfolio and one non-insurtech, exciting startup, potential to disrupt their industries. If you could share, that would be lovely. Yeah, I think the non-insurtech may be slightly easier for me to go. One one large industry, which I think is fascinating, is the card payments networks. Visa, MasterCard, Amex, trillions of dollars of market cap between them. Significantly multi-billion dollar revenues and larger time when you take all the other smaller card networks like Rupee, et cetera, into play. But I think technology today allows you to disrupt that. We've seen UPI in India disrupt a lot of the small value plays. Uh, we've seen PIX do that in Brazil. And somehow in the US and Western markets like UK, et cetera, card networks completely dominant. So one company that I'm super excited about is called Atoa, A-T-O-A in our portfolio. It's bringing QR code payments to the UK. They've had a great initial start. They started getting a lot of traction in things like barber shops, beautician parlors, et cetera, where there's no real benefit from using a card payment. But the only reason it's being done is because customers are just used to it. So that's a huge revenue pool, huge sort of profit pool actually, because payments are there's small, it's sort of small value in every payment, but there's not much cost to a payment. And so I think bringing QR code payments to Western markets, and if you can scale that will be truly transformative. So that that's a company I'm super excited about as they scale out their, their tech and effectively build a UPI type layer for the UK to start with and we'll see where it goes from there. So that's non-insurance. Insurance. In our portfolio in InsurTech, look, I think Cover Genius is a company that has done really well. And it's one of the few that has solved the NPS issue by being very focused on claims and communicating well with the policyholders. They have an NPS of 70, which is way higher than any other insurer by far. So they've done well, they've scaled globally. In fact, they're now entering the Middle East in a big way as well. Yeah. So they've done a good job of working with insurers to innovate on products, create new products. But they're still more of a distribution company. So they've done a great job. But I really personally think that the real innovation will come and you allow insurtechs to become manufacturers of products rather than just distributors or yeah. enablers. Nice. Absolutely. Cover Genius is, is a brilliant example. And it probably needs to go a little more down the stack to become a manufacturer, as you said. Yeah. They're, they're, and they're now big enough to start thinking about doing that seriously. In fact, doing it in various shapes and forms already. But yeah. More is still needed. Cover genius alone can't solve the world's problems. That's a great example. Now, going back to the whole the VC aspect of investing in a startup, now typically everyone asks for the financial returns straight away, or there is that pressure of having the financial returns. And that's anyway the philosophy behind an investment portfolio. But how do you balance the need for the financial returns with the need to support impact, support innovation in the startups, especially in the early years? My view is that, you know, financial return only follow, you can't lead with them. If you lead with them, it becomes challenging. So for us, it's on about 
the problem you're solving, why the problem needs to be solved, what's the sort of issues with the solution today. And I think if we nail those down, sometimes financial returns come, sometimes financial returns don't come because even if you get on with this right, it's a lot to the execution. So the way we think about it is if we focus on the right and the big enough problems that truly matter to to customers, to businesses, especially to customers, then you should be, you'll end up with the right financial returns while creating outcomes which are beneficial to people. So that's the bottom-up philosophy. Top-down, of course, there's some exclusion lists and things like that. We won't invest in addictive things like real money gaming. We don't invest in tobacco, pornography, things like that. It is a challenging thing because uh, obviously we can't invest in a non-profit, for instance. We ultimately are a, you know, we're a venture capital fund. LPs give us money in the hope of making market-beating returns. There is a illiquidity premium. So, you know, if the markets are giving you 10, 12% IRR, we need to deliver 30% IRR. That does mean that you need to focus on projects that truly can deliver financial returns. But yes, they need to, there are many ways to deliver financial returns. And our view is that as long as we are working on things that are truly meaningful problems and solving them in an ethical way, we should be richly rewarded and hopefully it's the right outcome. A, a couple yeah. of notes. I was just going to say, the climate is completely different from the past, let's say, decade, pre-2021, let's say. The era of easy money is over. The interest rates were relatively benign. Now, things have suddenly changed. The Fed has hiked beyond recognition. And in the past, everybody used to be a VC. Now, all those small VCs, mom and pop VCs are going to, or angels are going to get wiped out, is my thinking. What are the sort of trends you're seeing in terms of Funding, speed, amounts, valuation, you have a ringside view of this. So it'd be great to know. Jit, I've been investing since 2008. So there were three words which were very popular back in 2008. That was path to profitability. You know, the J curve that you used to build that, okay, this is how you'll become profitable. And ideally, you'd see that the profitability was no more than, say, three, maximum four years away. That question had disappeared. Nobody's asking for path to profitability. 2019 onwards, right? It's, it's just growth. Build the concept, yes, exactly. <laughs> Keep the headline growth up and that's all that matters. So path to profitability has come back. That question has come back, especially from growth investors. I, and I personally think that's a good thing. Yeah. Look, we were living in very strange times for a few years where momentum was everything and monetization and all of these questions were not asked. So it's back to a bit of normal. Monetization is important. Growth continues to be important, but sensible growth not that you're giving dollars for 80 cents, right? So obviously everyone will come to you. So I think those are good things. Funding has slowed substantially. Again, at the seed stage, because of the 10-year horizon, things haven't slowed that much. But seriously, at Series B, it's almost completely closed as everyone reevaluates, tries to figure out what, what's the right multiple, what's the right path to profitability for some of these more mature businesses with bigger user bases, revenue bases. So I think later stage companies are having to pivot quite quickly from a growth mindset that it doesn't matter how much we burn as long as we do 100% growth and revenue to, okay, this is the path. So a lot of our later stage companies have had to rethink their budgets in 2023-24 from this is how we'll grow and just talk about growth. This is how we'll become cash neutral. So becoming cash neutral has become the new North Star a lot of growth at any cost. And that, again, I think that is perhaps going too far in the opposite direction because cash neutrality 
is something great for stable large companies, but if or cash flow, free cash flow. But if you are still a three, four year old company, but you've got a great product and you've got great growth prospects, I think it's okay to not be cash neutral. So I think we've shifted too far as the rate stabilized in September, hopefully get the right happy medium. But yes, as if you're a founder, you should think about like what, what's my path to cash neutrality in five years. And yes, then if the market is opened up again, eight to 10 years, the earlier thing that, okay, cash neutrality, who cares? You know, this is how it will grow. Just focus on growth. Those days are, I think, gone for a long time. And for those aspiring venture capitalists or angel investors, some of the lessons that you've learned from these past years, you've been there through multiple cycles now, 2008. Yeah. What would you say? <laughs> yeah, 2008, I was investing from a family office, so it wasn't really venture, but yeah. we were doing venture type deals. What would I say? I'd say it's a tough business, especially funds are tough business because you have to build the right portfolio. It's hard to generate. There's there are a lot of metrics that are published, especially by the Kaufman Foundation that you can look up to see that this is one of the slowest and most difficult ways to get rich. So I think a lot of folks saw this as a path to becoming very wealthy. And I think I would advise them to really think that it's not the guaranteed path to become wealthy and B, even if you do, it's very slow. And three, it requires a lot of patience, especially now that rounds are not happening at that pace. So you're, you need to have a lot of internal motivation and enjoy the work. I think it's hard to be a trader in this space. And a lot of people with a bit of more of a trading mentality, and I invest in this, it goes 3x, I send it to the next investor. We're coming into the ecosystem. I think those guys, they'll be flushed out and probably the rightly, it's not the right ethos for venture. You want to do this with a lot of patience. You want to do this for the love and enjoyment of working with founders, not for the quick wins and trades. Yeah. And you need to be comfortable with wealth creation happening over the 10-year and 12-year horizon, especially if you're doing a fund because you have to first return the capital, then some carry, et cetera. It takes a long time to see carry checks. Wonderful. This time of flux, it's good to go through that mentality of having it steady and the right path. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Now, can you give us a little more insight about some of the initiatives that you're working on, especially on the InsurTech Association piece. I know there has been some chapters and roadshows that you've had outside of India as well. So it'd be great to know some of the projects that you're working on from that side. And even probably if you're able to give us some flavor on the VC side of things as well, are there any exciting projects that you can share information on? Yeah, so on the I, on, in IIA side, the Indian InsurTech Association, there are a bunch of things we're doing, but I think two things that are sort of really exciting. So we, one of our governing committee members, Sumit, is working on a handbook for alternative data underwriting for insurance. I think that's very topical. It's how do you use non-traditional data to create personalized contextual products for customers. And that handbook will be published shortly. I think it's got obviously a bit more of an India bent to it, but probably something that can be adapted and used across the world, especially in markets like Middle East, where a lot of, there's a lot of similar behavior on the consumer level. But I think that's one that I'm excited about to see how, as that comes out, a lot of work has gone on internally on alternate data sources for underwriting. And the other one that I guess to highlight is we are doing more work with investors specifically. There's a lot of insurtech capital in markets like the US, UK. We're building an insurtech investor connect piece where we're bringing startups and I, I'd love to include Middle East startups from that yes. uh, who are raising seed to series A and putting them in front of investors in the UK and the US who 
you know, want to deploy to this region, but perhaps don't have the sort of the right sourcing network, the right insights around how to evaluate and deploy into startups in this region. So those are two initiatives that I'm excited about from IIA's perspective. It's hard to point to any initiative, but we are keen to do in more investments in the UAE. So we just did our first investment in the UAE uh, in, in the crypto space what? just a couple of months ago. In fact, when, when we met you in, in February, and we're seeing a lot of interesting startups come out of the region. So from our side, we're keen to see meet founders in Shortech or otherwise, but certainly more in Shortech founders. We'll certainly look, look to increase that allocation to the UAE. You said handbook. Uh, we're actually going to publish our handbook as well. But it's a, it's a compilation of articles from different leaders within the insurance industry. So we look forward to reading your handbook as well. What yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I look forward to reading that. Now stepping back into the whole theme of diversity and inclusion. You know that I've been in on board meetings in financial services companies. Majority have been men. The whole issue of diversity, right? Whether it be in the short tech industry or insurance industry or in the among the VCs. Is that something that you look at? Is that something you're addressing? Would love to know your thoughts. So, sir, yeah, Ranjit, that's a great point and something we certainly look at. I think there's a lot to do both industries in, in short tech and we see have significant gaps in representation and access. We've done the usual things of being like, I was part of the NEET, you know, government body. They run a female founder acceleration program. So as part of that, we've done business of founder office hours. We're launching a women in insurance subcommittee and trying to promote that. These are all small steps. But we need to do more. I don't have an answer. Like earlier said, if I had a magic wand, right, we could do more licenses for insurance. I don't know what the magic wand here would do. But <laughs> we need to do. We need to do more. At our, from the VC perspective, we are always interested in promoting female founders. There's luckily we have a fairly decent representation in the portfolio, but we can certainly do more, and keen to do more. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it remains hard in the sense whenever I put an open call out or something for jobs, for pitches, whatever, it's almost always 90% male, 10% female. I don't know what we need to do to solve, but more women need to put their hand up as well. I'm not trying to say that's, it's their problem. It's a group problem. We need to figure out how we do it. But yeah, it says, even if you want to do it, it's challenging because it's just the sort of number of people put coming forward always remains skewed yeah. towards the male side. Yeah, I was talking to a women's angel network, which had recently formed. And the nucleus of that was a founder who had a lot of trouble raising for her own startup. And I, we know the global numbers are a sub 2% or whatever that female founders get funding. Her approach is let's get some female angels together so that we can favorably look at women founders. So that's an interesting approach, but by no means is that the only solution, especially when you are, you have a fiduciary responsibility to the LPs to provide returns, you cannot say no men founders or anything like that. It's a tough thing to do. Yeah. And again, I think it's, these are all parts of the solution, right? But I don't think you need only women to look at funding women. I yeah. do think men can yeah. fund women and we'd certainly like to do more of that. Yes. Yeah. So I think the answer is not in just one or a few actions. Like you said, it's about doing everything that possibly can because it aggregates together and every little yeah. thing matters. Right. So and from the way you build your team to the culture that you're able to emulate and everything comes together from that perspective. Like in our job, when we put a job application out from Leo, we always write women are encouraged to apply. It's always nice that 
few women at least respond to saying, hey, I would not have applied, but I saw this, I'm applying. And mm. so these, I think, are a lot of small things that a lot of us can do and being more aware of just that you need to be slightly more, to be a bit more inclusive is helpful, but it's a much bigger problem than anything one VC can solve. No, but the fact that you have that sort of pronounced outlook, even in my conversation with you, you said that's one of your focus to have more women entrepreneurs itself shows that you're making the right strides, which is, which is amazing. The long way to go. I mean, I wish, I honestly wish our portfolio was much more balanced in terms of founders. It is what it is at the moment. I'm sure hopefully the listeners are listening in and a lot of them are women. And I feel, I hope you feel encouraged to reach out to you and to Leo Capital. Sounds good. Yep, yep. I, I encourage them to. Any final thoughts before we bring this podcast according to a close? No, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation and looking forward to many more in short take pictures from the UAE. Thank you very much, Shwetak. This was a great fun. Yeah. Thanks, Vidya. Thanks, Ranjit. Enjoy this. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, it's me, Ranjit. If you enjoyed this episode, I request you to leave us a review. This will help us to reach more great podcast listeners like you. Thank you.